Lord, with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer at the beginning so that you have the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Holy Spirit as we begin our time uh, in the Word together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful for the fact that we have you to come to, and that no matter what the circumstances in life may be, no matter how uh, disappointing various uh, political situations and circumstances may be, no matter what bad decisions are made, we know that we can relax and trust in you, and we ought not let these things disturb us, though they do. We often need to be reminded that we do not put our trust in man but we put our trust in you. And even though it's difficult to live in a nation that is in self-destruct mode, we know that the only way that we can ever recover is through a spiritual solution. And until there is a restoration to spiritual truth and a recognition of absolute truth in your revelation, there can be no true prosperity or freedom in this country. Father, we continue to pray for our leaders, especially those who do have a biblical framework and do understand truth. Pray that you would give them wisdom, strength, perseverance, endurance, even in times of difficulty. We pray for the others that you would restrain their evil, prevent them from achieving their objectives, and that as we go through what will be a certainly a fascinating political season for the next 18 months, We pray that you might give us clear thinking as we come to understand who these people are that seek to lead this nation. And we pray that you would make it clear who has wisdom and who does not. Now for us as we study this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand what you've revealed in your word, that we may clearly understand it, assimilate it, and tell others about it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today certainly started off with something interesting. For those of you who were divorced from the news, which I don't think is too many of you, the uh, Supreme Court handed down a ruling in relationship to this challenge to how uh, funding for these exchanges, these health exchanges, worked on Obamacare. Many people on the right, those who are opposed to Obamacare, thought that that this would be uh, that the Supreme Court might overturn this which would eviscerate Obamacare. Unfortunately, they did not. But what we see in their reasoning is a, is a significant window into the thinking that dominates this country at this point. And I want to start off this evening by just talking about that a little bit so that we can come to understand it. The real issue here is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a big word for some folks. It basically means how you interpret what something means. That something means something as as intended by its writers. Now, when it comes to the human sphere, sometimes people don't write very clearly, and that's certainly true in this law. That's part of the problem that was that was coming up, is they that Congress did a pretty pathetic job of writing out what they wanted, and so there, it, there was a certain ambiguity that um, was recognized, and this is why it ended up uh, before the before the Supreme Court. So, first thing I want to do is just remind you of some basic principles of interpretation. 
Now, this applies to any kind of literature. It even applies to the area of the arts, music, and it applies to visual arts. It applies to anything that the author is communicating something and that the author is the one who is, who determines what is what is he writes means. And so we call that in the study of interpretation authorial intent. Now this is an important issue that we've talked about this a lot when it comes to understanding the Bible and bib- biblical teaching that we need to understand the intent of the author. And in the case of the Bible, there's dual authorship. There's God the Holy Spirit and then there's the human author. And you can come to understand what any author intended, whether you're talking about uh, a writer of scripture or whether you're talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence or whether you're talking about the writers of the Constitution, you can determine what they mean by using certain principles. The first is the, the use of literal, plain, normal use of language. This means that you can study any document and on the basis of what these words mean in everyday language, you can determine what that person writes. Now, today we live in a world where due to the influence of what is called postmodernism, people don't think that meaning is determined by the person who's the author or the writer, the artist, but the meaning is determined by each individual person. It's how you look at something to determine whether it means, or even if you look at yourself. And if I look at myself and decide that, in my self-consciousness, I'm really a woman, then I'm a woman. And that's been legitimized by many different, um, by many different statutes in different cities, including Houston, that you are who you think you are, not what you are. There's no objective truth. Truth is determined by your own individual impression uh, of who you are. And we've seen a couple of examples of this negatively in the last couple of weeks. Got the example of Bruce Jenner. And now he's, uh, he looks at himself in the mirror and he sees a woman. So now he's going through this transformation, uh, to be a woman. There's no objective truth. And one of my great, I didn't get this to show you, but, uh, somebody sent out an email with the cartoon the last week, which is a picture of Bruce Jenner's dog. And when you click on it, there's a cat there. There's no objective truth. Everything is whatever you want it to be. And and the problem with that is that sooner or later, that falls apart on the shoals of reality. It gets shipwrecked on reality. You can't just make things up and make the world be what you think it ought to be uh, when reality is, is far different. The other is the case of this Caucasian woman up in Spokane, who's the president of the NAACP, or was, uh, up there, and she said that she was black. She had no African-American heritage genes. Biologically, she was straight, strict Caucasian, but she felt black. And we live in a world where how you feel is more important than objective truth, because we've rejected objective truth, and when there's no objective truth, anything can slip in. And so language doesn't mean what it means. It means whatever you want it to mean. And so the reader can can look at a book on how to understand language in, in a postmodern world, written by a postmodern, and how do they expect you to interpret things? by the way they intend it to mean. See, they can't live consistently. If I'm a postmodern writer and I'm telling you anything can mean whatever you want it to mean, then you can't reinterpret that to mean anything else because I'm trying to communicate something objectively to you from my mind to your mind. So the unbeliever lives in this fantasy world. Romans one eighteen talks about how Unbelievers want to suppress truth in unrighteousness. They're truth suppressors. And when you suppress truth, you have to reinvent reality. And that's called fantasy. And sooner or later, when you're really living in your fantasy world, your fantasy castle, you live there long enough, then you're you're what they call psychotic, that your fantasy has become reality. So the only way to understand anything is in terms of the Use of language in terms of its plain normal normal use. 
A second rule of interpretation is the single meaning of the text. That when I say something is white, that doesn't also mean at the same time that it's gray or off-white or blue or purple or green. That if you tell people, we're going to meet tomorrow and we're all going to be in a group together, so for identification, everybody wear a red shirt, that doesn't mean that you should show up in a blue shirt or green shirt or a yellow shirt. You should show up wearing a red shirt. Language means something. And if language doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean something specific, then language can mean anything. And if language can mean anything you want it to mean, then language means nothing. And it's ridiculous. So we might as well throw everything out because the written word no longer has meaning or significance. So ultimately, as Christians, we would say that attacks on language are ultimately an attack on the word. And the word is important in the Bible because in the Old Testament in Hebrew, you have this word memra that refers to the revelation of God. And that is brought over into Greek as the logos. And Jesus is said to be the logos, the word of God. And so we believe in the written word of God and the uh, the the uh, physical, the individual uh, word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you attack meaning in this way, which has happened for over the last hundred years, and you destroy meaning, then the Bible doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore because it can mean anything to anybody. And so you run into conversations with your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, your kids, your parents, and they say, well, I just don't think it means that. So how do you determine meaning? There are clear rules for determining meaning. These are two of them. And the third one is that meaning is determined by context and usage. So when you look at words in Scripture, you look at how they are used. And sometimes they're used with different meanings. We've looked at things like the word saved. And if you were here last week when I taught uh, last Thursday night at the Chafer Conference on Romans 10, 9, and 10, you, you learn that sometimes words have different, uh, different meanings. Saved sometimes refers to being saved from the eternal penalty of, de- of, of eternal condemnation. Other times it means simply to be delivered from a physical trauma. Sometimes it means to be uh, saved in terms of being saved from the power or of the sin nature. Sometimes it means glorification. So you have to look at context to determine determine usage. Now, this is important, and I'm just going to go through this. I don't want to belabor this, but this is a great example for us to learn how people are thinking out there because this is why we get so frustrated sometimes. We live in a culture where the vast majority of people do not think that words have meaning and that that's significant. It can mean whatever you want it to mean, and that's how they operate. And when this gets into the law courts, we're in serious trouble. And I have friends that are lawyers that are operating both as as legal as legal counselors and as prosecutors. And what they tell me is that this has so permeated the function of law at the at the basic court level, that we're in serious trouble. And this is how people are when they come. You're trying to interview witnesses. You're trying to deal with uh, uh, people who are suspects. And they, they just make anything mean whatever they want it to mean. And it's extremely difficult to even have a meaningful conversation with a huge segment of our population because language has lost its meaning. So let me just summarize what's happened here. Is in the in the um, Affordable Care Act, which is really a misnomer because it's made care much less affordable. In fact, a report I saw this morning said that in states such as Hawaii, the cost of health insurance has gone up 49 percent. In some other states, it's gone up 47 percent, 42 percent. You can Google the data and find it for yourself, but this is what has happened in this new marketplace. It's not only the fact that you have um, certain uh, progressive Democrats and Republicans who colluded on this, but the insurance companies discovered that they could make an enormous amount of money off of this. 
And so they were glad to jump on board, and the insurance lobby behind this is just incredible. So the way this was supposed to work is that the Act created something called an exchange, an insurance exchange in each state. And each state was motivated by the law to uh, operate these exchanges because they would get certain freebies from the federal government, and they would get all these bennies. Now, there were a couple of states that started off, and they were going to be the postcard example of how great these exchanges were. One of these is, is Oregon, another New York. But what happened is after they established their exchanges, they realized it was going to cost them more money to have this exchange through which people would buy their health insurance than to just not have the exchange. And because the government wasn't giving them enough bennies to make up for how much money it was going to cost them to have these exchanges. So according to the law, every state was supposed to establish their own exchange. And um, according to the summary, I printed out the whole, the whole court filing uh, this afternoon, just highlighted a few things. It says... Uh, the act requires the creation of, ex- of an exchange in each state, basically a marketplace that allows people to compare and purchase insurance plans. The act gives each state. Now, how are they using the word state? To refer to each of the 50 states. The act gives each state the opportunity to establish its own exchange, but provides that the federal government will establish the exchange if the state does not. Now, this is their summary. Do you discern in that language that there is a difference between the federal government and the state? Is that obvious? And that runs through the whole document. They use the the term state numerous times, and it always refers to these individual states. It doesn't ever refer to to the federal government. Let me look at another example here. Uh, Okay, that's basically what I just said. In uh, Section 36B, it says, If the statutory language is plain, the court must enforce it according to its terms. But oftentimes the meaning or ambiguity of certain words or phrases may only become evident when placed in context. So we all recognize that sometimes words are a little bit ambiguous, and it's the context that informs it. Now, we're going to have a big argument over this in the court. That's what the argument was, was over context. And so then it goes, the summary goes on to say, so when deciding whether the language is plain, the court must read the words, quote, in their context and with a view to their place in the overall statutory scheme. Okay, so they recognize context determines meaning. Then it goes on to say, when read in context, the phrase, quote, an exchange established by the state under 42 U.S. paragraph whatever, is properly viewed as ambiguous. The phrase may be limited in its reach to state exchanges, but it could also refer to all exchanges, both state and federal, for the purpose of tax credits. That's the real issue. Are the people who live in states that don't have exchanges, Texas was one of them, are they going to be able to get tax tax credits since their state doesn't have exchanges? So then in the summary, it also says the Affordable Care Act, I love this phrase, contains more than a few examples of, quote, inartful drafting. Inartful drafting means they wrote it so badly that nobody knew what in the world they meant by it. Okay, that's the legislature's responsibility. Okay, now when we get into... um, Looking at the dissent opinion, um, Justice Elite, uh, ju- excuse me, Justice uh, Scalia wrote the dissenting opinion along with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, and they they say in summary the court holds that when the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act says exchange established by the state, what they say that it means is exchange established by the state or the federal government. See, they're adding a phrase. Why in the world would they want to add that phrase? Now, Scalia goes on to say the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act makes major reforms, and it provides that if a state does not comply with this instruction, that the Secretary of Health and Human Services must establish and operate such exchanges within the state. But he goes on to make, make a point that 
that what the case is all about is it requires us to decide whether someone who buys insurance on an exchange established by the secretary gets tax credits, which is what I just explained a minute ago. He says in the next paragraph, this is, this is the heart of the whole thing. It says, words no longer have meaning if an exchange that is not established by a state is, quote, established by the state. See, that's the word game that the, that the majority opinion had is that, that they didn't really mean established by the state. What they really mean is established by the state or something else. They're just reading it in there. He goes on to say, it's hard to come up with a clearer way to limit tax credits to state exchanges than to use the words established by the state. How else would you limit it? You know, they couldn't have said it more clearly. And he goes on to say, it's hard to come up with a reason to include the words by the state other than the purpose of the limiting credits to state exchanges. Quote, the plain, obvious, and rational meaning. That's point number one. The plain, obvious, and rational meaning of a statute is always to be preferred to any curious, narrow, hidden sense that nothing but the exigency of a hard case and the ingenuity and study of an acute and powerful intellect would discover. In other words, make it up and add it in. Under all the usual rules of interpretation, in short, the government should lose this case. But normal rules of interpretation seem always to yield to the overriding principle of the present court. The Affordable Care Act must be saved. See, here's an example. We see this in theology all the time, where people have a theological agenda, for example, covenant theology, and they're going to ram, cram, and jam that meaning into a text in order to get the text to fit their theology rather than letting the text have its own meaning. So this is, this is what has happened, and I'm not going to go through a highlighted bunch of other stuff, but I don't want to take any more time on it. That's the guts of it. So what we see is as our culture drifts more and more away from objective truth, then you can make meaning up and add meaning. And the problem with this has nothing to do really with your political views on uh, Obamacare. It ought to have something to do with your views of, of the Constitution because, as they said, it was inartfully written. It was poorly written. But the intent of the law is determined by the legislature, not the courts. And when the court says what this really means is, and then they add a phrase, then the Supreme Court is legislating from the bench. And the result of that is the Constitution has now been shredded. It is irrelevant. The Supreme Court is dictating uh, meaning and law to the country, and we are now under a judicial tyranny. The Constitutional Republic is dead, and it's going to get worse in the next couple of days if the Supreme Court rules that same-sex marriage is okay. And that leaves us as believers in a great quandary. My question in my mind is, how in the world can I exhibit loyalty and faithfulness to a government for which those words have no meaning? And what it means one day is different from what it will mean another day. How in the world are we to know what to do on any given day? Because on any given day, the meaning of these documents shifts and changes. And that leaves us in a horrible position, and it will lead, unless there's a massive shift in the worldview of the nation, it will lead to either the collapse and anarchy of the nation, or it will lead to total dictatorship and tyranny, one or the other. So we really don't have a whole lot of options to us, unfortunately, except we are commanded in Scripture to pray for those who are in power, pray for those who are in authority, and to the degree that we can, we need to respect that, but it doesn't mean that we have to validate it. And that's going to be a real challenge. Almost every major conservative Christian organization now is yesterday there was a large black pastors ministerial association that came out calling for um, calling for civil disobedience against the government if the Supreme Court rules in favor of same-sex marriage. Last week, it was the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, it's the American Family Association. James Dobson, Focus on the Family, have all called for Christians to get involved in civil disobedience. 
I don't think that's the answer in this because nobody's making us. Now, if the government comes in and makes a church perform a same-sex marriage, that's a different story. That's where civil disobedience comes in. You never have a case in Scripture of civil disobedience unless the government is telling an individual believer to do something that violates Scripture or not to do something that violates Scripture. And to allow for same-sex marriage is very different from mandating that every pastor, every church will have to perform same-sex marriage. We may be headed there, but that's not what's going to be decided on in this, in this court case. So I think that, that as much as we agree that this is perverted and horrible and is a violation of the meaning, now marriage means something else. How are we to know what anything means? Uh, as much as we may agree with that, We've got another problem, and that is that Scripture says we, and, and the government that Paul was talking about, was a perverted government. You can never say that people like Caligula were not perverted, and the Roman Empire was clearly perverted. Some rulers were better, some rulers were worse, but the perversion that took place and that was allowed within the Roman government and Roman culture was worse than what we've got. So let's keep things in perspective. Okay, let's get back into the Word, because that refreshes us. We're in 1 Peter 1, and we're looking at this opening statement in verses 3 through 5. <coughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A statement of praise. We can praise God for a reason. And, and, and remember, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul, uh, Peter is going to come out and also say that we need to obey the government. And the government was a, a government that was... Uh, allowing at different times within within the next 30 or 40 years at least for persecution against Christians. And these believers who are Jewish believers were suffering individual opposition and persecution. <coughs> so praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. It's unchanging. It's permanent. It's eternal. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The whole focus here is on exuberance. We can be excited, despite whatever negative circumstances are around us, we are focused in the long-term game. We're not focused in the short term. Ultimately, what happens today, tomorrow, next week, next year, that is going to fade against eternity. And when we have that perspective, we can still have great joy because we have hope. When we look at the passage, we spend a lot of time talking about who God is and the attributes of God, the eternity of God, the immutability of God, and that this applies to all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Why do we praise Him? Because He, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. Now, I broke this down here a little bit so we can see the phraseology. Each one of these phrases is loaded with significance and with meaning. We praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to His abundant mercy. Now, the Greek word there that's translated uh, according to is a preposition that means according to a standard, according to an absolute. And that absolute is God's mercy. Now, mercy is related to God's love. God's love is an attribute that is eternal. It's one of the few attributes that where it makes an absolute statement that God is something. And the God of the Bible is said to be holy. God is holy. He is also said to be love. God is love. Now, the other attributes are ascribed to God, but these attributes are emphasized and brought out and highlighted by these bold statements saying, God is this. God is love. Love manifests itself towards the human race in two different ways. One way is through grace. 
Grace is undeserved kindness or unmerited favor. It means that we don't deserve any of the good things that God gives us, and he gives good things to unbelievers and believers. He gives good things to those who are obedient and to those who are disobedient. God is uh, God has freely given his son to go to the cross, to die on the cross for, for sins, even when we were obnoxious to him. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God isn't saying you need to come toward me a little bit and then I'll do some more for you. God doesn't say show me that you mean it and then I'll save you. God just says here's the gift. If you just accept it, if you just believe it, then it's yours. And the gift is eternal forgiveness. The gift is eternal life, the very life of God. The gift is the, the foundation for meaning and happiness in life. That's grace. We're saved not by works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, but by grace. It is God's goodness, puts the emphasis on what God does, not on what we do. Now, mercy is related to grace and to love. Grace is the principle of God's unmerited favor to man. Mercy is the application of that grace, that kindness, to people who are specifically undeserving. Mercy has to do with grace in action. God's uh, kindness to those who don't deserve kindness, that is God's mercy. When we deserve something horrible, God negates that, and that's his mercy. And so it is according to his abundant mercy, his manifold mercy, the richness of his mercy. His mercy is a bottomless measure. It's infinite. We can't measure it. We can't quantify it. We can't, we can't outdo it. We can't outsin his mercy. You can't do anything that is too great for his mercy to cover. Our sin is all finite and limited, but God's grace is infinite. His mercy is infinite. It is more than enough to handle whatever problems that we have in life. So that's the standard. It comes from his love, his grace, and his mercy. And so according to that standard of his mercy, he does something. He it says he has begotten us again to a living hope. Now, what I like about this phrase is it shows directionality. It's towards something. It's toward a living hope. It doesn't say to a future hope. Notice, he doesn't say to a dead hope either. It's a living hope, which emphasizes that it's a present reality. That when we wake up in the morning and you turn on Fox News or you turn on ABC or CBS or NBC or one of the 30,000 people in the whole country that watch Al Jazeera, if you can turn on Al Jazeera America, and you hear all these negative things, you can have hope. It doesn't have to wipe out your day. It doesn't have to wipe out your spiritual life. We have a living hope. We need to focus on the future. So this whole section is going to help us to understand that we're to live today in light of eternity, not in light of tomorrow, not in light of any of these horrible uh, Supreme Court rulings that are coming down, not in light of all the machinations that are taking place in, in, the, in Congress, not in light of the fact that we now have... I've lost count, 14, 15, or 16 candidates on the Republican side for president. And every day it seems like somebody else is announcing that we're going to run for president, they're going to run for president, and it's just going to turn into an absolute Donnybrook for the media. And they're going to play everybody against each other, and it's just going to be a mess. But God's in control. We have a living hope. That means it ought to change and focus our attention every single morning on the fact that we have hope. And, he's, and, and it states that he has begotten us again to this living hope, and it's through something. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, when we go back and we get there, we'll study the resurrection of Christ, that's the reality. I bet I could ask every person in this room and a whole lot of other Christians say, do you believe Christ was raised from the dead? Sure, not a problem. That tomb is empty. Jesus arose. Hallelujah. So is you, do you have a living hope? See, there's an application. You say you believe in the resurrection of Christ. 
what one of the things that produces according to this passage is a living hope because Christ conquered death his victory is our victory and so because he has victory over the greatest problem we'll ever face which is death then all of our problems fade into insignificance so if you believe in the resurrection it impacts your mental attitude and if it's not impacting your mental attitude, then we need to stop. We need to take a look at 1 John 1, nine again. We need to refocus and rethink about what we say we believe and how it should impact our thinking and what's going on in our heads. These doctrines are not just ideas that are historically significant. They are ideas that should be changing how we live and interact with the details of life on every every single day, every single occasion. So as we work our way through this, we look at the fact that the standard is his grace or mercy, and that caused him to do something. He, be, he caused us to be born again. And so we need to look at this aspect of the grace solution, which is regeneration. We need to talk a little bit about what uh, regeneration is, and then we need to see why this is so important. Now, one of the great tools that you can use in talking to an unbeliever is just draw out a little chart where you put man on one side, God on the other side, but there's a problem between God and man, and that is the problem of sin. Now, you don't have to get much more complicated than this. If you're talking to an unbeliever, you can just leave it like this. But if you want to understand all of the internal dynamics and complexities of salvation, then we need to recognize that the Bible builds this out in a little more detail. That the sin barrier that exists between God and man is really composed of several different facets. It's, there's more to it than just that, that we sin. In fact, we're not condemned for our sin. We're condemned for Adam's sin. So we have this barrier, and as we've studied this before, and I didn't want to go through the whole barrier, we have six different components to that barrier. The basic problem of sin is that which separates us from God, but it has different features and facets to it. We've all sinned, but that's really Adam's original sin. Because of what Adam did, we're all sinners. The old Puritan primer said in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so it's his sin that condemns the race. Everybody seems to think that it's their nasty little sins that have caused this separation from God. But we sin because we are sinners. We sin because when we were born and we came out of the womb, we were already sinful. We were corrupt because of Adam's original sin. We were already corrupted by sin before we ever exercised our volition. So that's the basic problem. Then on top of that, there's a penalty for sin, which is spiritual death. Another problem is the character of God. How can a righteous God have any kind of relationship with sinful, unrighteous people? How can light have fellowship with darkness, the Scripture says? Then we have the problem of unrighteousness, because even if the sin is paid for, we're still unrighteous. So how's God going to solve the problem of our corruption, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? We've got another problem, which is spiritual death. We're born spiritually dead, and we're born in Adam. That's our position. He's our father, and we're in the Adamic uh, family. So we've looked at all of these in the past, and those are available. All the discussions on these are available under the series I taught on salvation. So we're just going to look at the one doctrine that we're talking about here, and that's regeneration. And regeneration solves the problem of spiritual death. So we need to come to understand part of what the problem is and so we can understand the solution. Now, if you talk to somebody about being regenerate, they're probably going to look at you like you grew a third eye or a horn or something between your eyes and have no idea what you're talking about, even if you use the term born again. Jimmy Carter made that popular and overused it, and it got overused and abused so much back in the 70s that 
it lost its meaning. I discovered that by witnessing to somebody. I was up in Denver at a family thing, and I was talking to some guy that one of my cousins, or that my my only female cousin was dating at the time, and I asked him if, I said, well, have you ever been born again? He said, yeah, I did. You know, all of a sudden, I, I, when I was in college, I decided my parents had given me all these, these, all these standards and all these, all these rules to live by, and finally I just threw them all away, and I was like a new person. You know, I didn't worry about their morality anymore, and I didn't worry about this, and I didn't worry about that, and I thought, well, what a perversion of the term born again. But see, that tells us that the unbeliever doesn't hear things the way we hear things, and they often give, give, Christian terminology, different meaning. And so we can't just use these terms uh, loosely. They've often become cliches, and you know what happens with cliches is that they lose their distinctiveness and lose their meaning. So we need to talk, understand the words clearly enough to use our own, our own vocabulary. So the first point that we need to cover in talking about uh, this concept of regeneration is to talk about its meaning. It means to be spiritually born. Now, some people pervert that. We have a lot of people who get in touch with their spiritual side. And what that means in common everyday language, I think, is that they get in touch with their emotions. Don't you think that's how most people use that? When you hear Hollywood stars say, I've I've just become so much more spiritual, they're just... in, in. they're just dwelling on their emotions and all their little self-absorbed desires. And once they get in touch with fulfilling the fantasies of their little sin nature, then they feel fulfilled. And so this concept of spiritual birth is also something that has a, a, a lot of confusion to it. And we have to define that. What does it mean to be spiritually born? To be born implies something, doesn't it? That something didn't exist, but now it does exist. Okay? So it's spiritual birth or being born again. That's, that's for Christians, that's the basic meaning. At the moment that a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit. Now we're going to break all this down, but this gives you the understanding at the beginning. Most of you have this. The Holy Spirit creates a human spirit and God the Father simultaneously imputes eternal life to that human spirit and imparts that spirit to the believer. And the believer passes from what the Bible calls spiritual death to spiritual life. Now we've got to break all of this down, uh, but we're going to do it slowly. But first, a couple of other terms. Regeneration is a technical theological term that we classify this under, and it's really derived from three different Greek words. The the, the first word is Polygenesia. Now, when you see a double G in Greek, that's usually pronounced like an NG, so I, I pronounce it polygenesia. The second word is ganaoanathen, and the third word is anaganao. Now, notice that G-E-N word, uh, syllable that's in the middle. That's that word, ganao, means to be born. Someone gives birth. When you read the sections in the Greek, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so. It's got that verb in there, ganao, means to give birth to someone. So pollen in the first word is a compound word, ganasia. What does that sound like to you? Ganasia. Anything like Genesis? See, same root. Something that begins. Okay, so pollen is a Greek word for again, so that literally means to be born again. Then the second word, ganaoanathen, is found in John chapter 3, when Jesus says you need to be born again, says Nicodemus you need to be born again. Uh, the word anathen can have one of two meanings, to be born a second time or to be born from above. Now, you'll find a lot of Calvinists say that it means to be born from above because they're emphasizing that the origin of the new birth is from God the Father. You're born from above. But how did Nicodemus understand it? Nicodemus' question says, well, does that mean I have to go into my mother's womb again? If he understood Jesus to be talking about from above, 
he wouldn't have ever thought about going back into his mother's womb. Context tells you what the meaning is. He understood what Jesus was talking about, to be born a second time. And then anagonao, that third word, is the one we find here in 1 Peter 1, 3. And that prefix, the preposition ana, also means again. And so it's the same verb, ganao, with that prefix again, and it means to be born again. So all of these words are used to communicate this same concept of of a regener- regeneration or being born again. Now, as I've said here, we get into this and we look at our passage in John chapter 3, and that's really the foundation for understanding uh, the, the spiritual spiritual birth. See, when we come down to the bottom of the definition, there's two key passages, John 3, 3 through 7, and Titus 3, 5. And that's where we're going to spend some time uh Sometime this week and next week is looking at those two passages. So turn with me to John chapter 3. This is always one of my favorite passages. And it's a favorite passage for many people who witness. When I was in high school, I went on a, went on a canoe trip with uh, Camp and Isle up to Colorado. We were going up to the headwaters of the Rio Grande and coming down. And one of the, uh, one of the counselors on the trip, one of the leader really who ran most of these, uh, Canoe trips was a guy named Mike Turnage, and uh, Mike was also the guy you've heard me talk about him. He's the one who uh, had me read the book The Genesis Flood by John Whitcomb and Henry Morris back when I was about 14 years old, and so this was a couple of years later. And I remember we were camping at a campsite, just uh, one of the numerous roadside campsites in Colorado. They're all over the place, and we were on our way up there. And uh, we we were up in the morning, and we we're getting all of our gear together and everything. And and I went with Mike over to they had these old hand pumps to get water, and we're cranking the hand pumps and fill, filling up our our uh, water pails. And this kid, probably a little older, high school or college kid, was camping there, and he came over. Mike started talking to them. This was a great example for me. Mike started talking to him. And he used that as as a question. He said, well, are, are you a Christian? Have you ever been born again? And then he just walked him through the gospel, and the kid trusted Christ. But he sat down with him, pulled out his little Bible, and went through John 3 with him and explained the importance of being born again. That was such a great example to watch somebody in a witnessing situation like that. I've seen Gene Brown do that, too, on more than one occasion. Except he, he, but you always have to adapt to whatever the circumstances are. Uh, every situation is going to be a little bit different. So we come to John chapter three. A couple of things we ought to understand when we, uh, when we look at this. It takes place very early in the Gospel of John. So it takes place very early in the Lord's public ministry. He's first presented to uh, the crowd in John chapter one when he comes down to to be uh, uh, to be baptized by John the Baptist. When John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it twice. And what we have in chapter 1 is basically four days at the very beginning of the Lord's ministry when he's publicly presented by John the Baptist, and then he picks up his first three or four disciples. He picks up... Uh, uh, John and James and Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. So he picks up six of them and they begin to follow him. And uh, then he performs his very first miracle in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2. And that is ch- turning the water into wine. This is a creation miracle that is determining that he is, uh, he is the creator God. And word of that would have begun to spread. Cana wasn't very far from his hometown in uh, in Galilee, in Nazareth. And we're told in John chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, that this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, that's always intrigued me because when we think of the glory of God, we think of the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament. We think of a bright light. We think of the uh, of the brilliance of God's character. But see, Jesus has that cloaked uh, in hypostatic union. He's not showing off his glory. He's, his glory is in what he did. He showed that he was the eternal creator God 
by what he did, not by um, some sort of uh, some sort of flashy light and sound show. And from there, we're told that he he uh, moved to Capernaum in verse twelve, and then he goes to Jerusalem. That's the first Passover uh, that he went to, and he goes to Jerusalem, and this is his very first ministry. And what is the message? We've been studying Matthew for a long time, so here's your pop quiz. What is the message during the first part of Jesus' ministry in, during the, the, uh, his public ministry? What's his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that ought to give you a clue because what is Jesus going to tell Nicodemus in, in verse 2, or verse 3 rather? Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now, how many of us have read that for hundreds of times and heard it for hundreds of times, and what we hear is heaven? Is that what Jesus is talking about? By implication, that would be true, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about seeing the kingdom. He's offering the kingdom uh, at that stage in his ministry, John the Baptist has been preaching that message. Jesus is preaching the message. He's going to send his disciples out with that message. That's the message that Nicodemus has heard that he's preaching. And, Nicod- and Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, a Jew, probably the, maybe even the, the, uh, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem at the time, because his, the name Nicodemus is probably a title. It means a ruler of the people. And it's probably not his, his everyday name. It would probably refer to his position. And so Jesus is, t- and, it, and the text says that he is a teacher of the law. And so he is a ruler of the Jews, teacher of the law. He's probably the foremost Bible teacher in Jerusalem at this particular time. And, and he knows what Jesus has done because he says, we know that no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So the signs have, have pointed to who Jesus is as, as the Messiah. Um, furthermore, he says, uh, Nicodemus in verse 2 says, you are a teacher from God. Well, that's, that was a title that the rabbis had for the Messiah. He would be a teacher from God. So he's indicating by what he says that he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember what Jim Meyer said last Friday night? Friday night at the conference, he gave a tremendous uh, uh, presentation on how people are saved in the Old Testament. There's so many people today, today scholars, uh, in New Testament departments and Old Testament departments throughout many different seminaries, who don't really believe in messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. No, those weren't really messianic. And yet we look at, at what happens in the New Testament and Jesus expects that Nicodemus would understand messianic truth from the Old Testament. Well, if it's not messianic, how could he expect that? But he made it, but clearly Nicodemus understands. He says, you're a teacher from God, i.e., you're, a, you're the Messiah. We, we, we know that you're, you claim to be the Messiah would be the, the sense of what he's saying. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So he's, he, Nicodemus already recognizes that he's got God's uh, stamp of approval on him. And Jesus then is going to address him specifically. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he uses this word, two words, ganao anathen. And that means to be born Again, to be born a second time. So this gives us a great insight into the core of the gospel message. It, it, you're, you're spiritually dead. Why does a person need to be born again? And what we learn from this terminology is that for something to be born, that means something comes into existence that wasn't in existence. Now, that's very important because as you read different theologians and you talk to different people about what it means to be born again, they get fuzzy. And, and not all of them are clear. Even some of the people you think would be clear aren't very clear. But to be born means that something goes from non-existence to existence. It comes in something positive, something new is added. In, in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians five twenty one, we learned that that um, 
there, that we become a new creature in Christ. Anyone who is in, is in Christ is a new creature. Behold, all things are new. All things have passed away. All things are new. We become a new creature in Christ. There is something new that's added. Now, the reason I bring that out as I, as I wrap this up for tonight is I was reading an article that came out in a theological journal, the Evangelical Theological Society Journal, in 1997 wasn't long before I went to uh, moved up to Connecticut. And it was written by a former classmate of mine in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary. And he was writing this article analyzing the conflict that occurred between Lewis Berry Chafer and the Princeton theologian Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield. Chafer wrote his book, He That Is Spiritual, in 1918. And uh, when uh, Warfield, who was considered the most uh, the, the most erudite Presbyterian theologian in America wrote his book review. He just slammed uh, Lewis Berry Chafer. He just ripped him up one side and down down the other. And so there were a lot of issues there. I think Warfield misunderstood some of the things that Chafer was saying because Chafer used victorious life language, but he didn't mean it. And so Warfield automatically thought that he was giving victorious life or Keswick teaching when he wasn't. But all of that aside, when I read through this whole article and I got to uh, this guy's conclusion, he said, one of the weaknesses in Chafer's theology was he had a weak view of regeneration, that he didn't have a view of regeneration that limited the power of the sin nature. Now think about that. Now that's because the guy who wrote it is is pretty reformed or Calvinistic in his soteriology and his understanding of the makeup of man. And it, it clued me into the fact that in reformed or Calvinistic theology, regeneration isn't the acquisition of a totally new nature where something new that is there that wasn't there before, but it is the limitation of the sin nature. Now, when you think about lordship salvation, it suddenly makes sense because in the Reformed idea of regeneration, the sin nature is limited, which means if you're really saved, you're not going to do certain things. Or you may do them, but not for very long because your sin nature is not as bad and nasty as it was before you were saved. But that's not what regeneration means. It means that something new is given. And in fact, there is something that limits the power of the sin nature it doesn't mean you can't do those things anymore, but it means that you can control it. And that's what? Romans 6, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a relationship between those two, which we're going to have to get into here. But what this is saying is you have to be born. Again, now, if you look down to verse uh, verse 6, we'll take it, start off with this next time. Jesus is explaining what this new birth is. And he said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That's material birth. We're born through normal processes of procreation, and the physical material is passed on from one generation to the next. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, I think that at least the New King James translation has accurately interpreted this. There's two different words for spirit. I mean, in in the Greek, there's one word, pneuma, and the Greeks don't capitalize. But if you look at your English text, it says that which is born of spirit, capital S, is spirit, lower S, lowercase s, which means that what comes into existence is something that is spirit. It's not something that's material. In other words, as we're going to see, is God creates this human spirit and imparts that to the individual at the instant that they trust in Christ so that that is part of what it means to be a new creature in Christ. So we'll come back uh, next time and com- finish this, look at Titus 3.5. But this is critical to understand the value that we have as, as believers who are now new creatures in Christ. We have a new capacity, and that capacity is drawn like a magnet to this living hope. That's what it goes to. We are born again to a living hope. There's a purpose to that, not just so we can spend eternity sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. 
but that there's this living hope. And those of you who've listened to me long enough know that the word hope is connected to our eternal destiny and our rewards and inheritances in heaven. And that's what this first couple of paragraphs in First in Peter drives us toward is recognizing the importance of living in light of that future destiny. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be encouraged by your word that there, in spite of negative things that are happening in our culture around us, in fact, it looks like it's just imploding, uh, we can have joy and we can have happiness, we can have hope, and we need not be overly concerned about these things because we know that you are in control and that we have been born again to a living hope that should shape our thinking, our attitudes, everything that we do on a day-to-day basis. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.